Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Jantonio, the producer of the Elevate Together podcast. The impact episode you're about to hear features the chief legal officer of NetApp, Beth O'Callaghan, and the host for this podcast, Steve Harmon, the COO and general counsel of Elevate. Beth and Steve discuss implementing change, how change can both motivate and challenge a team, and that success should be measured not only by looking at metrics, but at the organization's values to ensure qualitative priorities are not missed. So Beth, excited to have you on the Elevate Together podcast. Before we jump into our formal questions, it would be fantastic to share with our listeners your journey to the position you have today. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. It's really a pleasure to be here with you and Steve today. So I started in private practice, but I actually started in litigation, which is a little bit unusual because I eventually did transition to corporate law. And the reason I did that was in part because I found litigation took a long time and getting to resolution on anything I found to be a bit frustrating and not the most efficient way to solve problems, which was a good lesson to get early on. And also in that role, I was representing companies in several of the cases and got familiar with the role of the general counsel or chief legal officer and really saw that they have the opportunity to tackle legal issues on a number of fronts. They're doing transactions or doing mergers and acquisitions, advising boards on governance matters. And that really intrigued me, the idea of being able to be a business advisor as well as a lawyer. And so I did set my sights on the kind of in-house role early on. My journey was I stayed in private practice till I thought I got enough education and resources and in order to follow that journey. So went then after several years in corporate law, doing IPOs and M&A and advising on corporate governance that I then went in-house and took that role, which eventually led me to NetApp, which I joined in now in 2013. So over nine years ago, and I've been in the chief legal officer role over a year now. So that's where I am. And along the way, I think what I've learned is learn as much as you can and do as much as you can and spread your wings. And it helps you be a better business partner and and a better in-house lawyer. So Beth, you mentioned the intersection between business and law and how that intrigued you. I'm curious about how you got the business exposure and developed your own knowledge about the business so that you would be prepared to address that intersection. But I think a lot of that, Steve, is really listening to the people that know more than you do. And of course, there are many of those people to this day learning from people in the business roles, whether it's the chief financial officer, which is frequently a, a very close client of mine in private practice, chief executive officer, of course, and the board and listening to and identifying common themes that you see across companies. When you're in private practice, you have the opportunity to see and talk to a number of companies and the the issues that they face. And I think being open-minded about that not everything is a legal problem or a legal matter and trying to view things more holistically, that you're solving business problems, not just legal problems. And I think that shifting the, my mindset, which I don't know exactly when that happened, helps a lot. And then I think your aperture is, is wider open for resolving issues in a more business-friendly way, which makes you, of course, always in compliance and legally and ethically and all of those things. But you find that if you're operating at a high-integrity company, which NetApp is, that those issues are not 
you're not dealing with, you know, corruption or fraud or anything that scares lawyers and is frightening. You're really dealing with very real time, practical business issues and can give your advice accordingly. So, so I think it's a lot more fun too. It absolutely is because in my experience, if you get pigeonholed into just simple black letter law questions, it really kind of degenerates into a parade of the horribles type situation where you're trying to anticipate everything that could possibly go wrong. And you're attributing to that the absolute highest cost outcome, the most horrible outcome. And then you're combining that probability, that magnitude of the loss and really twisting yourself into a a position where everything can terrify you, right? Yes. So. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, and I think the advantage of being in-house, as I like to say, is not only is it a much richer experience in terms of the practice of law, because you are closer to the business and to the people that are conducting the business and the products and whatever it may be, you also have a much better ability to assess risk because you know the organization, you know the people, you know the personalities. And I think that's harder when you're an outside counsel because you're not in the machine, right? And so you do have to be much more guarded and careful about what advice you're giving because you don't know how it's going to be taken or interpreted, right? And so being in-house helps you kind of be the translator or interpreter of that legal risk and like how much is it really applicable to us and what do we really have to worry about versus kind of the hypothetical parade of imagined horribles that you referenced. Yeah. I'm curious how you train that throughout your organization, right? Because conceptually, it's okay to, at least in my experience, you think about, well, every system has an error rate. Occasionally, we're going to get one of these things wrong. There's a risk associated with it. There's an outcome that's unpleasant sometimes. And as lawyers, oftentimes we operate on a model that says we have to be right 100% of the time. And that's just not realistic. I mean, you and I coming from similar technical backgrounds, I think the companies that we've worked for, we realize that literally every system has an error rate. You know, in order to have a hundred percent uptime in a situation, it's very, very expensive. And so right. how do you promulgate that? How do you teach that within the lawyers in your department? Yeah, that's a great question. I hope I do do that, <laughs> by the way, Steve. I do think there is a a learning curve that people have coming from outside counsel or big law roles into companies. And I do think it is our obligation to help them adjust to that. First of all, it's giving people the space and comfort that it's okay to make a mistake because the system has this error rate. I think creating a space and environment where people know that it's okay, I got your back, right? If you make a mistake, it's also getting to know the organization, the people developing trusted relationships. The mantra that I try to share is always, it's never no, it's almost never no, it's always how. So- teaching people. And the more you approach it that way, the more you get a seat at the table with the business folks, because they know you're there to help them solve their problem. You're not there to say no or tell them about the many things that could go wrong with their plan. And as our CEO like to say, you take no risk, you get no money, right? So I think that's, that's, yeah. that's you'll have no customers, right? You'll have no business. So sometime, and then with very junior folks, and I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday about Someone on the team, it was like, you know, just make sure they know that whatever they do is not going to break the company, right? <laughs> we're, ne- we're never going to put you in a position where it's going to be a huge problem for us. Like we will, and hopefully, you know, none of us have the ability to do that, but like certainly you and your role, we're going to give you 
responsibility and charter appropriate to your skill set and experience. And hopefully you will build upon that. You'll show us your success and that will grow over time and you have more responsibility and ability to do greater damage, but also ability to do greater good, right? And we will give you guidance along the way so that you aren't doing damage or we're helping you not do damage. I love that statement. I often say to my team, I said, they know you're junior. Don't worry, you're not hiding it. Right. (laughs) That reminds me of an exchange I had with one of our business colleagues recently. They brought to my attention the fact that one of our customers was, quote, in breach of our contract, right? And so immediately they were up in arms and offended that the customer was in breach of the contract. And my response was, well, what do you want to do about it? What is the remedy that you're seeking? And that made me reflect back on my law school education, right? Contracts is a required course for first-year law students, but remedies is an optional course. (laughs) And I've always, that's always struck me as a strange trade-off, right? Because if the remedy doesn't matter, neither does the breach, right? (laughs) Right. That's right. That's a really good point. Well, you know, we were just having this conversation at a general counsel forum. It's like, There's so much focus on getting the commercial, the customer contracts right. And then without the context of how many times has a customer sued us, right? (laughs) And what kind of business plan is suing your customer? Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. More to the point. Yeah. Yes. Precisely. (laughs) Of course, in a modern legal department, there is opportunity to make improvements. There's change that's being implemented daily because of technology the need to be more efficient. Beth, can you reflect on a change that you've made within NetApp where you've made an impact, a positive impact through executing change? Yeah. So at least I'll say that I thought it was positive. So I think having just been a year in role, right, probably the jury's not all together in, but I think there's probably two areas that I've focused on and one is in aid and in furtherance of our overall corporate values and objectives around diversity. So I could talk about that. And the other is really kind of looking at the company and how we supported in a slightly different way that we had done traditionally, which involved reorganizing people. And I'm not talking about laying people off. I'm talking about shifting how we support the organization to have more emphasis on what is kind of a growing product area for us. We have our traditional business where we're doing lots of innovation and have lots of initiatives, which is our storage business, right? Which is now both our traditional on-premise business as well as our cloud storage business. And then we have a cloud operations business, which we had built up with several pretty significant acquisitions that we now needed to support from a legal standpoint. It's not like a side job for someone. And so we need to really reorient the legal team to reflect that. And so that created opportunity for people to, because it was a new function, a new area. It also was like, how much work is this, right? We haven't really done a real assessment. So using our legal process outsourcers to help us, this is a full job. Measuring the amount of work really helped us in terms of right-sizing our organization to support these new areas. It also provided us with an opportunity to give new development opportunities for people that maybe had been doing commercial law for a long time or privacy law and make maybe want to do something new. And so it did actually create both internal opportunity, which I think is people are always hungry for in, in organizations. And I think was very well received by the business because they felt like 
oh, okay, we're getting more attention and like people are helping us see around corners and we're not just doing this by ourselves. And we're also, especially with new regulatory requirements around privacy and data, right, then we're basically able to help be a cost prevention or be more of a, we are seeing around the corners and helping you build those things into your products now, as opposed to having to retrofit and fix things later. So I think building efficiency in the business as a whole, when it comes to delivering products and services. So the other area I talk about is our diversity initiative, which like many technology companies, NetApp has opportunity to build out its diversity And we focus on growing our representation of women on a worldwide basis and then growing representation of underrepresented groups within the U.S. And so with looking at our team, we do well on gender diversity, but we were definitely lagging behind the company in terms of our underrepresented groups in the U.S. And so that was with help of our employment team, which our legal team, making sure that we had processes in place in terms of looking at diverse slates of candidates and making sure that those diverse candidates had a diverse person to talk to when they came in through the interview process, right? We had diverse interviewers and making sure that my leadership team knew that this was a priority and showing him them statistically like why we shouldn't be any worse off than the company, right? We always want to, lawyers are competitive. We always want to beat, exceed whatever's out there, right? And so I'm expecting that of you. And so we actually have been able to double, we're starting with small numbers, but we have been able to double our representation of underrepresented groups on the team, which I'm very proud of. And then we also looked at, okay, yeah, that's internally, that's some of our spend, but let's face it, most of our spend is external, like many legal departments, but that's different from the rest of the company, right? Most of the rest of the company doesn't have this high expenditure externally. So we've started and this is you know step one on a long journey of just working with our outside firms to say like hey let's start a baseline of where you are in your diversity journey and we want the money we spend internally and the money we spend externally to reflect the company's values and so let's work together to help improve it right and this isn't a judgment like i shared our scores like in our diversity statistics at the company. This is some place where we all have work to do. And I think the legal industry specifically has a lot of work to do. And so not done yet, but I think really emphasizing for the organization internally and externally, these are things we value and are important. And we want to make sure that we're doing our part to make progress in this very important area. I really like one thing about your approach kind of stuck out to me that really resonates strongly. And that's having different approaches, different goal sets, depending on the region of the business or the way you subdivide it, right? If I understand correctly, you had a worldwide goal to increase the participation of women in your department, but then regionally, presumably because you had met a threshold goal in that global space, you were able to narrow that down in one region and say, we want to take the next step. And I see lots of benefits to that where sometimes organizations try and apply the same rule set on a global basis. And there may be other inhibitors, you know, the available talent pool may be different from one region to another, or the types of underrepresented classes may vary from region to region. So I think that's a really innovative way to solve that problem. Well, thanks, Steve. I think, you know, it's definitely an area where it's the think globally, act locally, because your problems are different in different regions, right? As are employment laws. And, you know, I probably can't get the data I want out of my European law firms about diversity, right? So I can only do what I can do, but you work within the constraints you have and in the context you have to make the progress you can. 
That makes a lot of sense. I also liked very much, Beth, the description you had on giving internal development opportunities to the members of your department as you went into that new technology area, that product vertical. I'm I'm probably mischaracterizing it, but one of the common challenges I think many large organizations face is people get into a track. I think as lawyers, we're very accustomed to getting put into a track. If we start out as litigators, we end our career as litigators. You're not an example of that. You've gone beyond that. Um, I'm a little bit different in that I've never billed an hour. So I went in-house immediately. But Lucky you. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to throw that in just as a little flex occasionally because I'm quite proud of that fact, actually, that I, I, I never spend any time tracking my day in six-minute increments. You but, haven't missed a thing, Steve, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Just avoided a lot of pain. I've heard. I've heard. <laughs> but as you looked at that new business area that your team was pursuing, how did you identify the staffing changes that you were going to both encourage to happen and allow to happen, right? I mean, there's some individuals, some professionals that will raise their hand very readily and say, hey, I want to go after this new thing and I'd like to do it. You've got a sometimes a question on can I afford to allow that person to move into that role? At the same time, sometimes people miss the opportunity to say, you know what, that might be a good development opportunity for me. So I'm wondering if that happened organically or if you had a programmatic goal when you started that out, did you identify people and kind of nudge them in that direction or did you wait for them to self-identify? So I was probably a combination of methodical and not methodical in that we did do as we had contemplated these changes, got together with my leadership team, obviously made sure they were bought into the change and supported the change because it would require shifting resources, right? That mm-hmm. was just kind of the the high level, hey, somebody's going to have less in their pod and someone's going to have more yeah. in their pod as it currently stands. And so we did do, as we do every year, a talent review, looking at the organization as overall by level, identifying people who there isn't always a promotion opportunity. And so what's another way? And I always tell people, you know, people think of their career as like what promotion, but it's at least in my experience, a lot more than that. Right. And good things come, I think, to those who take risk and try new things and expand their skill set and however they do that or however they go about that. And that is something that we do try to reward in the organization. And I think that goes back to making sure people are comfortable to take risk We have been able to afford development to date a project like you can go do this, but to make a wholesale change, that is something that we don't do that often. And so you're right. It was kind of a significant undertaking from an organizational standpoint. And so we as a leadership team went through this talent review and kind of identified people that we thought could do take another tack, try something new, had demonstrated certainly curiosity, growth mindset is something we emphasize a lot. And made those adjustments to them. And some went well, some people (laughs) didn't like it, right? So, you know, and then people kind of self-select that way, right? And so, but I think in general, it was well-received in terms of people seeing that something was going to change in the organization, that new opportunities were created that then create other opportunities for either lateral or upward mobility into different parts of the team. Beth, thank you. That was terrific. And I appreciate the detail. Can you describe when you were implementing change, any challenges you had, any people, any pushback from different areas, instances where you needed to persuade? Nicely put, Nicole. I think there were definitely times where certainly in the conversation with my leadership team, I felt a lot of support. There were definitely some 
areas of reticence or, and sometimes at least when the organization, what exactly does this mean? I'm like, well, we're trying something new. We're going to figure it out. Right. I think there's a certain level of winging it, right. right? <laughs> it's not all buttoned up and uh, nicely drawn out with rules and responsibilities, like a racy chart, right. That was, we we're going to have to figure this out together. So making sure there was trust amongst the team and a willingness to be honest, we're still working through some of those things. They pop up every now and again. So we're probably like 80% there. And then there's 20% where we're still kind of, there's maybe either moving back into old patterns or like we haven't faced this yet. And like I said, we did have, you know, some people had to move, change their managers that might not have worked out or they might have not have liked this new job as much as the other job. And so there was some of that, I think, around the edges. But in general, I think positive momentum. And to be honest, the measurement for me at a high level was it was something my boss really resonated with him and definitely resonated with the business organizations without compromising the support that the company had gone received to date. Beth, you mentioned measurement, and that's something that I'm always curious about. And as a general counsel and as a legal operations professional, right, I tend to find two camps in the legal world. One you have the stereotypical lawyer that went to law school because they didn't like math. It's too scientific <laughs> for me. I, I start in the humanities and I want to stay in the humanities. And then you have another group that says, well, wait a minute, the measurement of this qualitative behavior, a lot of what we do has a qualitative component to it. You know, How do you assess good legal performance versus poor legal performance is challenging. I'm wondering if you have any advice to the listeners about how to strike a balance between accuracy and measurement and directional knowledge that you get from measuring things. And if I haven't articulated that clearly, feel free to ask a follow-up question. I guess I would say you've got to look at what your organization values and how your organization measures its performance and success and take your notes from that. And you may have additional measures of success that you need to layer on because legal is its own animal, right? So understanding directionally that my CEO values data. You would like to see statistics instead of just blatantly saying, yeah, things are better. Well, show me. Taking your cues from that are important. But I do think there is always a danger in getting lost in the numbers and not really stepping back. And so I think you have to balance that with, are you talking to your clients? Are you talking to the executives and their direct reports in terms of how they're experiencing the legal support that they're getting? Is it going well? Is it, I think you have to ask those questions, right? And so that one of my first initiatives was like, let me go on a listening tour and figure out what's going well and what's not, and both within my team as well as our clients. And so from that, I think that's kind of the qualitative aspect. And then you look at our, you know, are we living up to our numbers, right? Whether it's our diversity statistics or our budget and are we achieving those milestones and how are we benchmarked against our peers? I think all of those things help you make sure that you're operating within, you know, relative norms in terms of how you manage the department, but also you want to make sure that you're really meeting and exceeding the standards that your customers and clients are setting for you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me and resonates strongly, Beth. What I think I heard from you is at least part of your goal on that listening tour was to understand how your clients are being measured themselves, right? How they measure success. And that's one thing that's always surprised me a little bit. Even in, in consultation with our sales team, I often encourage them to start with the first question of how do you measure success in your organization? As, as a service provider to companies like yours, You know, I want to know how you're measured 
because that translates into the measurements that I need to make to make sure that I'm reinforcing the the measurements that are important to your CFO in some cases, your chief people officer in the case of the diversity metrics, possibly your cycle time metrics when it comes to the sales organization that you're supporting. If we don't understand how our clients are being measured, it's easy to degenerate into things like, you know, what's easy to count, you know, (laughs) how many comments from the SEC in our last 10K, you know, what are you going to do with that information? Is a big number good or a (laughs) small number good? Right, exactly. (laughs) That's a really, really good point about like, yeah, what you can count. And I think that's also one of the things we strive for and I strive for is to really be that valued business partner and trusted advisor. And if your clients know that all you want is their success, right? Because their success is the company's success and we're collectively supporting all of them, then they're going to want you there, right? They know you're on their side, not vis-a-vis, not against anyone else, but right, we're helping achieve those company objectives. And so that, I think, adds to the topic we talked about earlier, which is learning the business, right? And then understanding the business and helping advance it. And that really creates the value and show, demonstrates the value of the legal team. Beth, based on you know your work, obviously you're working for an organization that has been recognized heavily within the industry as being run very well, very efficiently. The legal department has looked at all of the different ways to become an efficient, well-run organization. What has been your relationship working with the legal ops department within NetApp and how has that impacted your day-to-day work and the work of your team? Nicole, so before I came to NetApp, I hadn't worked with a legal operations team. As soon as I was oriented with it, I was like, oh, you do all this stuff I don't want to do. It was awesome, right? This is amazing. You do go through the bills and look at all this stuff, the engagement letters and all this stuff that is like one more thing for a lawyer to do, right? A lot of the administrative burden that falls on a department, on the teams. Huge advocate of that. When I came into this role, the legal operations was just like this magic thing that was happening over here. And so I really did take the time to kind of dig in and understand. I felt like it was the the part of the team that I knew the least about intimately. And so I really did kind of dig in, meet with all of the vendors, right? Met with Elevate, met with like our billing technology company, met with all these folks and really got familiar in a more intimate way with all of the things the function was doing. And then you're looking at, okay, in light of corporate priorities, we're like, do we want to shift things around? Do we want to insource roles, roles we need to outsource? And our operations team is fantastic. And they have really served to be real champions for the rest of the organization in terms of helping them meet their goals, helping us make sure we hit our budget numbers every quarter, making sure we're keeping a sharp eye on our clients and where are there places we can gain efficiencies that things can be centralized so that we don't have a lot of people doing the same thing, right? Fragmentation of of work is inherently inefficient. And so looking at all of those things and they help, they certainly help me from even just like a team morale and like cohesiveness, like organizing offsites and getting us together and looking at things that are the most in terms of drawing us all together as a team. And so it's been a real an education instead of just looking at, okay, that's an awesome thing happening over there to really getting to know it and really and now owning it has really been an education and a privilege. And then thinking about what else can we do, right? That's the next thing. And there's so much opportunity in the operation space that it's kind of green fields. Yeah, that's a great observation, Beth. I'm curious if you have a a particular model that you use or set of criteria you use to kind of evaluate opportunities to push things out to legal operations, right? I'm 
I mean, as a general counsel, fundamentally, one of the things we have to address is we've got a resource allocation exercise. How much of our internal budget needs to be allocated to the various tasks that we have, whether it's data protection or litigation, responding to IP claims or M&A activity, whatever it might be. So there's this finite amount of resources and budget that we have to allocate. Do you have a model that you use to assess the types of activities that you want to keep in-house versus the things you might want to out-task or outsource completely? Or is it done organically? Do the requests come up from the department? Do you find that it's the legal operations team reaching down into the business and making suggestions? I'm just curious how it works in your organization. On the the people resource side, I've asked the team, what is the work? What's the duration? What's the level of expertise? If it's an ongoing thing that we're going to be dealing with for three years, it doesn't make any sense to contract it out because you lose all the knowledge. But if it's in spurts, it's in connection with a particular transaction or a particular regulatory scheme that we need just to kind of set up, let's think about kind of more temporary resources. I think once you see in terms of the non-people side, if I see something enough, okay, can we automate this? Like, what, (laughs) what can we automate? So in love with automation helps us go faster. There's consistency, there's ease of documentation, right? All of those things that can come with a good process and good technology that we benefit from. So those are probably my two areas of focus. And I think, but you also have to have the business case for the investment, right? Of course, right? So that's that's also equally important when undertaking anything. The level of investment is one that I think frequently gets de-emphasized. We as legal professionals forget about that. I know I made this common mistake early in my legal operations career. Part of my focus was how do I make the lives of the lawyers better, right? Because I viewed the lawyers in the department as my clients. And it took me a while, but eventually I came around to the fact that that's a desirable outcome, but it can't be my primary outcome, right? My goal is to make the business better, to enable the business. And sometimes that's going to make the lives of the lawyers better. Sometimes the lawyers aren't going to like the new change, but it's going to make the business better. And that's where the focus has to lie. So I like the way you characterize the investment analysis because the return on that investment comes down to a function of how you're measuring success once again. And if the success is, well, the lawyers are very happy, um, that's a good outcome. (laughs) Something must be wrong, Steve, if the lawyers are happy. I joke with our sales team and say, you know, I could be your favorite lawyer if I just agreed to everything you want. My customer satisfaction NPS score would be off the charts if all I did was say, of course, we'll agree to uncapped liability and liquidated damages are great. It's one of my favorite things, you know. I would be your very favorite terrible lawyer. You have to think about the team you're on. I'll illustrate with one example. Like many companies, years ago, we created an automated NDA tool and everyone loved it because it got rid of this kind of menial task. It's probably malpractice not to have an NDA, but nobody's ever litigated one since the <laughs> beginning of time. You know, So we automated this process and then we had one of the regions of the world come to us and say, well, you don't offer this automated NDA tool in our particular language, right? Let's just say it was Japanese. And this great automated process for producing NDAs in English, we want you to do it in Japanese. And I said, yeah, it's a great observation. How many NDAs do we do in the Japanese language? (laughs) The answer was eight. We on average did eight a year. I had to have a pleasant but direct conversation that I get would make your life better if those eight NDAs (laughs) took away. But the ROI for that is now 17 years. 
in terms of the amount of development that's required. (laughs) And I think that's a really important point, especially when it comes to thinking about some of the new technologies are out there, whether it's bots or AI. What's the use case? Like, it sounds cool, but how much is this going to get used for the business case that this is going to save money, time, not just of lawyers, but for the company as and generally. Absolutely. But the thought has to go into legal operations serving not just legal, Steve, exactly as you said, but serving the whole company and making sure that it is actually enabling the lawyers and the legal professionals to do better work for the enterprise, not just for the legal team or the legal team's reputation. So that's a great way to end. Beth, thank you for sharing your thoughts, your stories with our listeners. Steve, always, thank you. Of course. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Steve. Tune into the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and ElevateServices.com. 